Amen. Praise the Lord for that. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. First Thessalonians 1, I'll let you remain seated as we're going to work towards the thought here this morning that I, I feel burdened about and that I believe could be a help and uh, maybe will be something that's not as much of an immediate uh, impact within our life, but uh, something that we can use and, and apply as we go down life's road here for us as you're preparing and experiencing the work of God in your life for the greater works even after your, your time here has come to an end. First Thessalonians chapter 1, notice in verse number 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is three men mentioned, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians. When I was in the seventh grade, I had to give an oral book report, and, and I didn't like doing those, and I didn't want to get up in front of anybody, and, and still really don't, and, but I had to give a report on how to do something. And, uh, and I asked the teacher, I said, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to what to uh, talk about. And she said, what do you enjoy? I said, I enjoy football. Well, she said, well, give an oral report on how to do something with regard to football. And so I went to the library and got a book on football. And, and you know, that uh, can be quite a vast uh, bit of information. You know, uh, those announcers, have you ever listened to a football game and you have these announcers and they, have a, they, they spend hours before a game, and then they're talking throughout the game, and there's nothing to me more annoying than hearing an announcer who's of the female gender and the voice coming through. And what's even worse than a female giving a sports commentary is when the female sounds like the male, and that's really tough. Uh, but, but you know what those announcers are? They, they are highly paid people to take a simple game and make it sound complicated. That's what they're getting paid for. But I was reading this simple book, and, and it talked about how to snap a football. Do you know what that means, snap? Not, not snapping like you snap peas, but, but how you hike a football. And so I gave my, my first ever oral book report on how to hike a football, how to snap a football. Well, that began kind of my introduction to a man that was well known in these areas. His name was Vince Lombardi. And Vince Lombardi was known for a lot of things, obviously as a coach of the Green Bay Packers, but he was known as an expert or a, uh, one that was very insistent upon the fundamentals of football. It is said that on one occasion that Coach Lombardi called a practice the very next morning for his Green Bay Packers who had lost to an inferior team. And it was bad enough that this loss seemed inexcusable in his mind, so he called this meeting the next morning and he said these words, Okay, we go back to the basics this morning. And he said, Number one, gentlemen, and he took in his hand a football, held it up, and he said, This is a football. 
Well, Lombardi operated on a simple philosophy. And he believed that excellence could be best achieved by perfecting the basics of the sport. You know what works in football works in other areas of life as well. When you say church today, it's like ordering Baskin-Robbins. I'm not sure how many flavors they're up to, but 31 flavors at one point. And that's what people have in mind when you say church. You almost have to qualify. And there are some basics today concerning church. And people have gotten away from basics and people today even leading our local church congregations today. You know, I say oftentimes, uh, I've tried to help over the last few years, even at our church, help them understand the concept of church. When we talk about church, we're not talking about Christianity at large. We're talking about what the Bible talks about and only knows of when it speaks of church. It's a local congregation and assembly. And so I say often, local church. But I, I, I tell them, I hate saying that because local church is really redundant. It's like saying wet water. Would you give me a glass of wet water? Well, that's the only kind of water there is, is wet water. And the only kind of church is a local church. And, and the foundational task of, a, of establishing the biblically oriented local assembly is challenging today because of the many different ideas. And churches like this are rare across our land. And it makes me want to get up many times in a church and in a meeting and say, this is a Bible. Because this is where we get our blueprint and our information. This is where we get our marching orders concerning this matter of a church. And, and here in 1 Thessalonians, we find that Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, they're ministering unto a church. It is a particular and a specific church. And I, and I say that because there were a number of years ago, in about the 1950s, that there was a phenomenon that crept into our, our mainline denominations, and that was liberalism. As it crept in, and uh, our uh, cross American mainline Protestant churches began to decline as a result, and, and there was a religious phenomenon that began to surface, and the rise of religious organizations operated apart from the authority of any local church or denomination. And some existed and began to experience phenomenal growth and influence. And there began a proliferation of religious nonprofit organizations that came to be known as parachurch organizations. And some of the older and better known such organizations would be Campus Crusade and Youth for Christ, Navigators, Child Evangelism Fellowship, Full Gospel Businessmen's Association, and, and then some of the more well-known moving up to today would be Promise Keepers, Focus on the Family, and on and on and on. And there are many parachurch organizations, and not every parachurch organization is bad. It's not a bad thing. Uh, camps and some Bible colleges and mission agencies would be parachurch organizations. And they're not bad because they're not a local church. The problem is, is whenever a parachurch organization would undermine a local church, that's where a problem would come in. But the point I want to get to is that there was another one that was on a rise, and it was the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And Billy Graham himself has been a leader in that parachurch movement, and obviously his presence is not as as uh, uh, impacting today. And but and there are others who have followed suit, but. 
there was a, a point in time where he made a statement. It was due to what he perceived as failures of the church to evangelize. And he said this, quote, The church has failed, and it is time for organizations like his to do an end run around the church and use any available means to propagate the gospel. Now I recognize, and I have lost some at our own church because of questioning Billy Graham. Uh, there's a, uh, a mindset that says, who are you? And, and the fact is, I'm a nobody. I have not seen as many people saved through my ministry, I am certain, as Billy Graham and many others. It is not about me, little no-name, who cares about Ingram questioning Billy Graham. But the point is, is that doing an end run around the church... That kind of mentality has no support in Scripture whatsoever. And is, a matter of fact, is contradictory to the teaching of the New Testament. Nowhere in Scripture do you find an admonition from Christ or the apostles to do such an end run around the church. If there's failure in the church, there has been and there is problems perhaps. But the answer is not to do an end run around. The answer is revival. The answer is an awakening. And what we, we find is too much uh, is at stake if we have a low view of what God has placed such high priority upon. We don't want to do an end run around. We don't want to do it in our actions. And we certainly don't want to do it within our mindset. The Bible says that this is a church. And we understand the word church is, is a, a called out assembly found 114 times in the New Testament. And Jesus said concerning His church, it's not going to fail. And no matter what may be perceived, it's not going to fail. We don't have to look at something bigger and better. How can you look at something that is the body of Christ? How can you find something bigger and better than the body of Christ? Where Christ is the head. How can you do better than Christ? We don't want to do that. What is a church? Well, a church is, a, is an assembly of baptized believers organized to carry out the Lord's work. What is the organization? Well, there's government, officers, ordinances, discipline, finances. What's the Lord's work? Well, we understand it's the evangelizing, getting people saved, baptizing, making them Baptists, making them Bible believers and doers, and then stabilizing them, grounding them in the faith. An attempt to do an end run around that? What would ministry then be? I, I want to go start a church, somebody says. And I will get calls and emails. Can I come to your church and present the burden that God's placed on our heart to go start a church? And I have them fill out a form. It just saves time. And, and one of the questions I, I ask is, uh, what authority do you have in starting a church? 
And it's, it, it is, and I'm not critical because I understand how long it took for God to bring me to an understanding of some of these basics. This is a football. This is a Bible. And this is basic. But there are some who say, well, the authority I have is God put it in my heart. Well, no, the authority is where God placed the authority demonstrated through the baptism. Baptism is that not just uh, I got saved, therefore I got baptized. Baptism is the mode that God used to establish how you're identified and what authority you're identified with. The authority is given to the local church. And to do an end run around there is to undermine the authority, that delegated authority, which is quite important. Before Jesus went back to heaven, He met with His first church. He placed in the church first apostles. He commanded, He authorized, He empowered them in Acts chapter number 1. Jesus is the founder, He's the builder, He's the perpetuator of His church. It began with Him and His apostles. And before He ascended, He commissioned the church to evangelize the world and to baptize. Ephesians 3, Jesus saved and called special uh, people such as Paul and apostles to unfold the mystery of the New Testament church. In Revelation 1, Jesus revealed Himself to John as the one who walks in the midst of the churches. Revelation 2 and 3, the great revival messages, the last words from Jesus were sent to and for the benefit of His church. The New Testament church is unique. It is the only institution, the only institution on earth. I want to tell you, that's why Baptist College of Ministry is so special because it is not an institution. It is part of the local church. This is a ministry of the local church which gives it a unique authority and life to it. The local church, the New Testament church, is the only institution that is the dwelling place of God. It's the uh, place that has scriptural authority to baptize and to observe the Lord's Supper. A Bible college doesn't have that authority. A camp doesn't have that authority. The church does. It is the only institution. The local church, Falls Baptist Church, is the, an institution that is told to us that is to be the pillar and ground of truth. It's the depository of truth. It's the storehouse for God's money and tithe. It's God's evangelistic agency. It has the keys of the kingdom. It's God's soul winning agency to do an end run around the church. No, thank you. Not for me. New Testament missions, it begins and ends with the local church. And so here we find Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus. They're here ministering to the church. And the church owes its very life and existence to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The life of the authentic New Testament church is not in the ability of a pastor to preach and organize. It's not in the ability of a staff to market and attract people. The, the uh, authenticity of a church is not in its human and worldly uh, a type of programs. It's not in man's personality and ability to promote. The authentic New Testament church, like the Thessalonian church, has its very life and existence and vibrance in God the Father and His co-equal Son, Jesus Christ the Lord. And it's very important. You say, I, I'm not planning on doing an in-run around the church. 
I think it's helpful to understand how the Apostle Paul was able to found this by the authority of God and by the power of the Spirit. Go back to Acts chapter 17. You can hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians. We'll come back here and in Acts chapter number 17. We are told that the Apostle Paul comes into Thessalonica here in verse 1. And there was a synagogue of the Jews in verse 2. And Paul, as his manner was, went into them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ was, must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city of an, on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, Notice the phrase, these that have turned the world upside down are come hither also. Whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, and they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So Paul comes into Thessalonica, and Thessalonica is a key city, and was and still is of Greece, and the key city of Macedonia, and and we find here a religious mixture. And I want us to, to, to try to, to get an understanding that what you face today and what you're going to face here in, in the Milwaukee area and surrounding areas, what you're going to face when you leave from here, wherever God sends you, it's not going to be worse necessarily. And even if it was worse than, than what we find here in Acts 17 and other places of the Bible, God's power can match whatever you face. But I, but I find it to be encouraging to see where Paul is coming to and what he's facing. And, and we find here a large, pagan, and extremely idolatrous people. We find here that there is all kinds of religious rites of idolatry, profane living, there's fornication, there's adultery, prostitution, there's sodomy, abortion, child abandonment, abuse, drunkenness, drugs, uh, uh, demonism. That's all right here. Not only is there the paganism, but then you find there are Jews. Now these Jews would have no idols. They would be high morals, at least on the outside. They study at the synagogue. They're industrious, economically wise. They're affluent people. So you've got a mixture. You have a very pagan, much like uh, the, what you would see if you turn on uh, television today. And used to, you could travel abroad to the European countries 10 years ago and you see so much sensuality and, and a lot of that is crept into right here. And so it's almost anything goes and everything goes. And, and you find that here, but then you find the Jews also. But then you find Jewish proselytes, we're told. And these are converting these pagans over to Judaism. 
So you have some Jews who are evangelizing and um, these pagans with some success. But here's what you don't find. There's no church. There's no church. There's no Bible. There's no gospel witness. There's no preaching of Christ. There's none of that. And so the Apostle Paul comes in. I came in, flew into Milwaukee. I'm here in Menominee Falls. But I didn't come into paganism and, and, and Judaism and Jewish proselytes. I came to a church. And it's a whole lot different preaching to a church than coming in as Paul did without there being a church with this mixture. And we find these people, these pagans, sensual, just filthy in their sin, Jews, proselytes from paganism to Jewish belief, they're all heading straight to hell. No gospel witness. But then there was a quake that hit. This past year has been a lot in the news about hurricane after hurricane. Texas, Florida, then the snow bomb going up the east coast. In Acts chapter 17, there was a quake that hit. It wasn't an earthquake, it was a gospel quake. Paul, Silas, Timothy blew into town with the gospel and Thessalonica was not the same. How did it start? Well, in Acts chapter 17, we find that the apostle Paul went in as he would do and he went in and uh, he, uh, the Bible tells us on the Sabbath and as Paul, verse 2, as his manner was, went in unto them and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul, he took the Word of God, he explained the Scriptures. The very thesis of Paul's reasoning was shaking up the Jews. According to verse 3, he opened, he alleged that Christ must needs have suffered, risen again from the dead. He preached Christ, and he, when he's doing so, the Richter scale perhaps was peeking out when he's presenting to them that which they had already read, that which they knew, but he's connecting the dots and he's preaching Christ. The Bible says in verse 2, he reasoned, which means he dialogued with them through questions and answers. Verse 3, he opened, that means he explained the Scriptures. Verse 3 says he did so alleging, means he was proving that Jesus indeed is the Messiah. And verse number 3, it says he preached. I read an article just a couple of weeks ago somebody gave me on how not to be too preachy when you preach. And that goes right with the other article on how to have church without it being too churchy. And one of the recommendations on the preaching was to cut down the sermon to 17 to 20 minutes. Now I want to tell you, I, I thought there was some wisdom in that, and so I started doing that. I cut my introductions down to 17 to 20 minutes. <laughs> I was preaching one place, and, and someone told me after I got done preaching, they said, um, you remind me of Jerry Savinsky. Anyone ever heard evangelist Jerry Savinsky preach? He's known for preaching 25, 30 minutes. And the uh, preacher friend that was there, he said, you reminded me just like Jerry Savinsky. And I said, in what way? He said, well, the length of your sermon. I said, Jerry Savinsky preaches 25, 30 minutes. He said, that's what I timed. You were 25, 30 minutes on the first point, 
25 to 30 minutes on the second point. 25 to 30 minutes on the... Well, I'm, I, I don't pass the, the idea that is given to us how to go about it. And I want to say that Paul, and he, when he preached, and I believe he preached, John Stott, a commentator, said Christianity is in its very essence a resurrection religion. The concept of resurrection lies at its heart. And Paul was preaching, declaring the power and the truth of the resurrection. And he presented Jesus. He presented the Savior. And he preached the death, the burial, the resurrection. And I want to say that the life toll of the gospel quake, it began to mount. Notice in verse 4, some of them believed. And of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. Some Jews believed. That is, they believed Jesus was the Messiah. They believed and were convinced that Jesus was the Savior, the Deliverer. Not many, but some. And then it says devout Greeks. These again, pagan proselytes to Judaism. They believed not some, but many. And then it says many chief women in verse 4. These are women of affluence and influence. They also believe the, the toll. You find the gospel toll, the gospel quake. People got saved and it shook a, a whole city. There sat Thessalonica. They were peacefully, perhaps before Paul, Going to hell under the devil's control. The pagans were involved in idolatry, the Jews in ritualism. And by, by the way, the devil loves both of them. Satan loves both. He loves for you to be involved in idolatry and wickedness, and he doesn't mind if you get involved in religious ritualism. But these three preachers came to town. Suddenly the place shakes. The gospel power goes forth for Jesus. The Word of God's preached. The Holy Ghost power is presented and something has got to give. I remember uh, hearing on recording Dr. Bob Jones Sr. say, Preachers, when you go out, you just keep firing in the hole. Something's bound to come out. I love the song we often sing. Will you pray with all your power while we try to preach the Word? All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Brethren, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. Brethren, see poor sinners round you slumbering on the brink of woe. Death is coming. Hell is moving. Can you bear to let them go? See our fathers and our mothers and our children sinking down. Brethren, pray and holy manna will be showered all around. Sisters, will you join and help us? Moses' sister aided him. Will you help the troubling, the trembling mourners who are struggling hard with sin? Tell them all about the Savior. Tell them that He will be found. Sisters, pray, and holy manna will be showered all around. To do an end run around the church? No, sir. That's just basic. That's not the message. I want us to take our Bibles and go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul didn't spend an awful lot of time with this church. But the significance of this church stayed with the Apostle Paul for a long time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4, Paul is writing to this church after he's left. He's gone into Corinth and he writes back to them. And you find 
going through chapter number three, he so desperately wants to know how they're doing. And it's a burden to him. So that he sends Timotheus and to get a report. But I want you to understand, the moral climate in the Roman Empire was not a good one. It's not healthy. Immorality was a way of life. And it was causing people to be so consumed with leisure and be in, indulgent of the latest pleasures. That's exactly what we have going on round about us. Christian, the Christians that, that Paul was able to, to uh, those that Paul was able to bring to Christ and those early infant Christians, the message that Paul's giving to them right out of the box is, is one that is so contrary to their culture. And it would not be easy for these young believers to just fight the temptations round about them just because, hey, Paul, he's the great apostle, told us to do it. Because it wasn't the case. It wouldn't be easy for them to fight the temptation because this is what all the other churches are doing when they didn't have that contact. They didn't have the, 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 the luxury of a Bible college setting and conferences by which they can be encouraged. But Paul is challenging those at Thessalonica this way. He's encouraging them not to be content with their salvation, but to grow and abound more and more. And we find in verse 1 of chapter 4, furthermore, in chapter 1, he gave us the, the credentials of an authentic church. In chapter 2, he gives us what a minister, the ministries of this church. And in chapter 4, he says, Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. And he's encouraging them. Seek to abound more. Seek that abundant life. Live for God. Please God. And He calls them to fulfill the will of God. He's calling them to know God. He's calling them to, to love Him. John Phillips said, To know Him is to love Him, and to love Him is to want to please Him. But notice in verse 2, For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. It's not bad to be reminded sometimes. I already know this. I already know these basics. I already know this concept. I already know these things. We've, we've been through this. And he's reminding them of what they've already heard and what they've been told and what they made know. Verse 3, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. He's warning them. He's challenging them. He's dealing with them about the importance of maintaining Bible purity. You may not do an end run around the church by linking up with some organization that would undermine the church, but if there's a way that is a subtle, dangerous, yet destructive 
way in which you can undermine the ministry, the authority that is to be delegated and to impact your life of a local church is to tolerate what God does not stomach. Impurity. Impurity. To get saved and to allow the culture to dictate, to allow your desires to, to lead you contrary to the will of God and to yield to sexual impurity, it is to undermine the plan, the program that is the greatest upon earth. The Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bailey Circus is not the greatest show and it's off the road now. The greatest program is not a show. It's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But impurity. And Paul gives some incentives to fight impurity. He says in verse number 1, you need to fight impurity because the second part of the verse says so that you can please God. And while there is impurity in your life, there is no pleasing God. To tolerate sensual thoughts and, and appetites and desires. And while you're suppressing those, perhaps nobody sees, no one knows, you're not pleasing God. Why? Because it is purity that pleases God. In verse 3, he says you ought to fight impurity because, verse number 3, uh, fighting impurity, it is obeying God. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. So fighting impurity, it will please God. It is obedience to God. But it is also demonstrating the good of others. According to verse number 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. You want to be able to treat others in the right kind of way, in a loving kind of way. Christian love is not what moves us into fornication. It is selfish desires that move you into pornography and move you into lust. Genuine Christianity loves people. They don't use them. You're, going to be, you're not going to allow your eyes, sir, to, to wonder when some young lady walks by. Because true Christian love, it is going to seek the good of others. It's not going to, uh, to treat someone as uh, an object. You're going to understand that they are a true, genuine soul that God loves and Jesus died for. Another incentive in fighting this matter of lust in verse number 6 is because in doing so you will escape the vengeance of God. And the Bible says in verse 6, at the second part of the verse, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Now you've heard and you know what moral purity is. It's just being single-minded. As you've heard Dr. Jim preach the message, it's, it's, it's not seeing uh, how much you can, you can uh, give away and still maintain it as keeping all for Him and all for one. And it's being single-minded in heart, in mind, in body, and in spirit. When you give in to lust, you're taking what God has established and you're perverting it. Lust is what sexual desire becomes whenever we lose sight of, of this matter of purity within our life. And it is a big deal. Lust dishonors that object. Whatever you may be uh, uh, putting your attention and putting your affection towards. But lust not only dishonors somebody, but it's all, ultimately it's disregarding God. 
God is the one who gave these emotions. God is the one who gave these desires. God is the one who created the bedroom scene to be maintained within the confines of marriage. It is the world that has polluted. Listen, one of the things I always enjoy about reading Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see the things that God does, you see the things that God says, and you see what He thinks about it. And then you find that what God says is good, the devil wants to try and pervert. And and it is God who created these emotions and these desires. But when we fail to recognize the importance of purity and we fail to fight impurity, we not only dishonor others, but we're disregarding ultimately God. Lust is what that sexual desire becomes when we give room to disregard God. Lust is a sexual desire that dishonors others and it disregards God. God. Now, in order to please God as new believers, Paul's writing to them and he challenged them to abound more and more. He had challenged them to the abundant life, to the victorious life. And how? How is that possible? To abstain from fornication, to stay single minded, and to be pure in heart and body and spirit. Abstain. It's the idea to refrain from, to keep oneself from. Fornication is simply the concept of sexual impurity of all kinds. It's that double-mindedness. Someone says, well, you know, shouldn't we get on to bigger issues? You know, because what you think in your mind, what you crave and lust, um, you know, what you look at is not as big of a deal as some of these bigger issues going on round about us. You know, like nuclear war. That's the way religious people think. It's not that big a deal. But I'm telling you, it's not what God thinks about it. What is God's estimate of how important your purity issue really is? Look at verse number 6 again. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. He's telling us that the consequences of lust are far greater than the consequences of nuclear war. Nuclear war can kill the body. But the consequences of lust, it can do so much more damage. It can do so much more, produce so much more destruction. Proverbs 6, 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So that he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, and that's either physically or even by way of internet or smartphone, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. You know the instruction in Matthew 5, 29. Thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. Matthew 5.30, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. According to 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 6, God's vengeance is coming upon those who disregard the warning of lust. Someone says, well, the sins of a Christian is different than the sins of the unsaved people. After all, we have eternal life. After all, we have forgiveness of sins. The sins of the, the unsaved are far different than the sins of the saved person. And I say, yes, they are different. I think the sins of the saved person are, are far worse. While it's true the Christian is not under condemnation, it is also true that one is not free from the harvest of sorrow that comes from sowing to the flesh and tolerating impurity. 
King David, you know, committed adultery, tried to cover his sin. God chastened him severely. He confessed his sin. God forgave him, but God could not change the harvest of consequences. And David reaped what he sowed, and it was a painful experience. Well, a nuclear bomb would have killed David, but refusing to fight impurity, it devastated him. But I belong to God now that I'm saved. He'll never cast me out. That's not an excuse. We heard yesterday, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God's goodness should never be an excuse for sin. It ought to be an encouragement to be pure and holy. God hath not called us unto uh, 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 uncleanness according to verse 7. But God has called us unto holiness. And I want to say, young person, despite what the culture says, despite what others may think around you, despite what the average church and the average church today may be on that slippery compromise slope where, where people are yielding and taking off the restraints, despite what culture dictates as acceptable and pleasing, the life of a believer is to be lived under the control of the Spirit of God. And when that happens, there is not going to be an ignoring of this matter of purity, but there's going to be a fight to establish it. So the question then is not do you know it? Because you know the fundamentals. You know the basics. But really the ultimate question is how? How is it that we can experience Moral purity. Would you look at verse number 5? Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles. Now who are the Gentiles? Someone asked, who are the Gentiles? And I'm the one asking, who are the Gentiles? Someone asked, who are the Gentiles? Who would you say this group of people would be? What is it? Those who are not saved. The Gentiles, these are the ones who are not saved because he's writing to a church made up of saved, baptized people, Jews and Gentiles alike. But he says to them, you're to be pure. You're to... Uh, to abstain from fornication, verse 3, and verse number 5, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the unsaved. Now would you say the last four words with me in verse 5? Which know not God. How is it that one can experience purity? Because impurity, it undermines Everything that God is trying to accomplish within your life. Impurity, it will devastate the ministry and plan of the church. And that's what you're here preparing in and under and through and studying so that you can be a part of this great organization that is actually an organism and be a part of its delegated authority and go forth with life-giving breath from the Spirit of God. And it is impurity that will wreck it. It's that which will choke the channel. But how? How is it possible? By knowing God. 
by knowing God. By knowing God. The Gentiles, what else can they do? Those who are lost, what else can they do? When you give way to lustful passion, Paul is saying you're acting like those who don't know God. Which means knowing God is the path to sexual purity, single-mindedness. Somebody says, I've known pastors who blew it because of sexual impurity. I've known Evangelists, I've known missionaries, I've known Bible college professors, I've known people who, who knew the Word of God and taught. I'm, I've known some of the best preachers I can think in my mind, some preachers that were so impacting to me while I was in college. I can think 25 years ago, I can still remember the messages some of these men preached. I mean, I remember the exact messages. I can just sit there and still think 25 years ago what God did in my heart when they preached these messages. And I know two, three men who are not even in the ministry, don't even go to church, not even with their wife, and not even with their children at all. They've abandoned them altogether. And someone says, well, how is that the answer? To which I say, that's true. There have been pastors and evangelists and missionaries and teachers and professors. But I want to say with all the confidence that, that I know and to communicate as well as I can, those men did not know God. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm saying to know 10,000, 1 million 10 billion facts about God is not the same as in knowing God. If you ever rely simply upon your intellect and you love to get into those deep stimulation kind of conversations and you rely upon that to express to others you know God, take heed brethren, take heed because failure is right around the corner. Listen, intellect and faith are not incompatible. You can be intelligent and be a man of faith at the exact same time. But simply being, a, being an individual of intellect and knowing facts is not the same and is not equivalent to knowing God. I loved preaching here in December on some of the Christmas uh, aspects. And, and it was very encouraging to, to look at those who did visit Jesus. We talked about those who, who missed Christ at Christmas. But we looked at those who, who also found Christ at Christmas, and one were the intelligent fellows. And these were the wise men. You know, these men were intelligent. They, they, they knew how to look at the star and follow the star and get to Christ. But you know what happened when they got to Christ? They worship because your intellect is only going to take you so far, and you have to exercise faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Not minimizing the intellect. What I'm saying is knowing the facts is not the same as knowing Him. I, there's enough in this Bible that will keep you searching and seeking and hungering for years. The time you think you've got them figured out, oh, we're not even close. I, I love that 
we look at, especially Christmas, again, just on, on my mind, talk about the virgin birth. That's enough to mess with anybody's mind. I mean, you talk about Jesus, a, an earthly mother, no earthly father. Jesus, the only boy, only baby ever born who had no earthly father but had a heavenly father. The only baby ever born who uh, was um, older than the, the father he had upon earth. When, when Mary held Him, and here He is, um, Jesus, never having a human man involved in His birth. And someone asked, how do you believe? How do you understand? How do you get a hold of these concepts? It's simple. The Bible says so. You know, someone said, do you really believe that the fish, a great fish, swallowed Jonah? Yes! If the Bible said Jonah swallowed the fish, I'd believe that too. I don't have any difficulty with that. But I'm also not in the intelligent category. But I'm saying, if you are, don't, don't just rely upon that and rest there. I mean, you think about God could take Adam with no human man or woman and made the body of Adam. And then God can take a, a, a woman, Eve, with the body of a man without the body of a woman. I mean, that's incredible. I think I said all that right, but it's enough to just, it boggles my mind. Down south, you just say whatever, and they're going to say amen anyway, so I always have to get off of that and make sure I said it right, lest they say amen to the wrong thing. But, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. But not only did the wise, intelligent men come to Jesus, and they had to exercise faith, but then we find the shepherds. I think that's where I would have been. Because the shepherds were the simple people. And I'll tell you, whether you, you clean the bathrooms of a, of a collegiate building or you're teaching in the classroom, we come to Him the same way. It's not knowing facts. Someone asked, I was asked often, why would you go to Covington, Georgia? And the answer I, I say is, I don't know other than I just feel like that's what God wanted me to do. I've been asked, well, what collar worker is there? The blue collar, white collar? I said, most of the time it's just brown. That's all I can see. They're just, they're just simple, plain folk. And I, and I tend to think that God wants to do something among a lot of the simple folk. And I think God's partial to them because He made so many of us. And I truly believe, I didn't come off the, the, the awakening road and the revival trail just to, to sit and, and to take it easy. I believe God wants to do an awakening in a small area in Georgia outside of Atlanta called Covington, Georgia. And I believe He can do it whether there's be a, an intellectual person there or a bunch of simple folk. But the fact is, we can never get to the point of just being satisfied with what we know and intellectual comprehension. There has to be an exercising of faith so that we can know God. All kinds of needs you have here. There might be some physical needs. There might be some severe emotional needs. There might be some social needs. Whatever need you have, I want you to understand, please understand, the greatest need you have and the greatest need I have is simply to encounter God. Every one of us have needs, but the greatest need we have is spiritual. And our spiritual needs can only be satisfied by God Himself. You get the right facts and information about God, that's fine. But what we need is a fresh encounter with God. Did you have one yesterday? If you haven't today, you still need one today. That's our greatest need. 
You need a fresh encounter. And in that counter, we move from knowing a truth, you move from knowing a principle or a doctrine to having an experience with a living Savior. Being in the presence of God, the living God, every day in, in, every day encounters are life-changing. Now, and that's not to say when you go through an encounter with God and you have your, your quiet time and, and you, have your, your, you go through your Christ walk journal and you spend your hour with God, that's not to say if there was something that was not just uh, extremely out of the ordinary that something's wrong. You know, this finger here, this thumb that I have, it's not always been that size. When I was a baby, it was a lot littler. But it grew. And I didn't always watch it grow. But over time, it grows. And sometimes in the presence of God, it's not, man, this was great. And then the next day, well, it wasn't quite the same. Maybe there's something wrong. No, every time you encounter the presence of God and you go in by faith and you meet with Him, there's always change taking place. We need to be in the presence of God. We need that awesome experience. We get into the presence of a living God, the Creator, the Savior of my soul. Meeting with God is life-changing. I write it down. Meeting with God is life-changing. Why? Because I need to remember that. I need to know that. Everyday encounters are part of His plan. And no one can leave His presence. No one can leave His presence without being changed. You can't be the same leaving the presence of God. And the fact is, God initiates these encounters. It is God who says, draw near. It is God who initiates. That's why we give the invitation. It is God who came looking for Adam. It is God who came looking for His disciples in the upper room. God initiates. And He's not doing so to simply help you. He's not trying to help you through the day. He's not just trying to help you in your schoolwork and help you find life's mate and help you get the ministry. He's trying to change us. He's communicating to us His thoughts, His will, His desire. And then He's trying to recalibrate our will our thoughts and our desires to be conformed to His so that in turn He can then help us and enable us. See, when we begin to see the battle plan that God has for us, it would really cause us to say as Mary when she heard the good news, the news that she would, would be the, the channel in which Jesus would come, she said, how can these things be? When you find out what God has in store, your attitude is going to be, how in the world can this be possible? And so that then the message comes back. Jesus gives you an assignment. And He says, this is a classified assignment today. And it's classified as, it's impossible. But this fresh encounter with God, what happens then is that you recognize the best armor you have and the best of your ability is like King David or King Saul giving to David his armor. And David put on the, the king's armor, ran around in it, said it can't work, it's inadequate. And you find that the armor of the flesh, no matter how sophisticated and refined, no matter how strong and how crafty it might be, it is inferior to the plan and power of God. And when you are in that encounter with God, that fresh encounter, you find this. While it is impossible, you find the reminder, but with God, all things are possible. Everything around us 
Every single day, every idea, every philosophy, every opinion, the mildest of radio stations, the, the, the calmest of TV shows, it has ideas and philosophies that are contrary to the God, the holy God of this book, and it will all leave us disoriented. But every time we open the Bible and we get into a fresh encounter with God, we have an honorable opportunity to experience a dramatic encounter with a living God that can shake us to the core, change us, calibrate us, conform us. And that's why we need fresh encounters. That's why you must seek fresh encounters. Our approach to the Word must be a humble, a humble willingness to obey whatever He says. Our approach should be no matter what it costs, dear God, I'm all in. God is always ready to speak. And when you allow, you will never be the same. One of the easiest things to undermine, do an end run around, the greatest institution upon earth, the plan for the ages, is to tolerate impurity of any kind. And the only way to succeed in being single-minded is knowing Him. Would you pray?